turn to Hebrews chapter 2. For the purpose of context this morning, I'm going to start reading in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 5 through 18, though we're going to focus largely on verse 16. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom All things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, or I think better, nature. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word together, as we consider what your spirit has superintended at the hand of the author of Hebrews, as this holy man wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, We pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the church. We pray, Father, that we would listen to our head, Jesus Christ, even as he proclaims his word by the spirit to our hearts for our edification. We pray that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That you would do that work by your spirit as we look at your word together today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been discussing for several weeks now that the eternal Son of God took on humanity to himself so that he could save mankind. 
He is truly God and truly man, that he might be our mediator, our Savior and our Lord. We've been discussing that, in fact, for six weeks. And now we come to a question about the particularity of his person and work. What do I mean by that? It's not enough to say, it's not enough to say that Christ came as a man to save all mankind. That's true, but it's not enough to say. We must reject this kind of universalism. It is simply not true that Christ came to save every human being who would ever exist. We know that some men are saved and others are damned. He came as a particular man to save a particular people. Look at Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, that is the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, the Father is bringing many sons to glory, should make their founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He has sent Christ to suffer to bring many sons to glory. He is the captain of their salvation. He is the captain of the salvation of everyone who is in Christ through faith. But he's not the captain of salvation for everyone. Not every man is in Christ through faith. And thus, he is not every man's savior. Some folks will only know Christ as judge. Look at Hebrews 2.11. For he who sanctifies, that's speaking of the Son, made man. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's speaking of us, all have one source or all share, I think, properly one nature, human nature. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. The Son as the sanctifier is one nature with those who are sanctified. And thus he is not ashamed to call them brothers. But not every man is sanctified or being sanctified. Nor is every man his brother. Many will remain in their sin and stand as his enemies. Look at Hebrews 2.13. And again, I will put my trust in him. That's the son saying that, quoting the psalmist. And again, be... Or actually, there it's quoting Isaiah. But and, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The Son has been given children by the Father. Please hear this. When I say this man, I mean it in a gender-neutral way. Not every man has been given to the Son by the Father. The Son expressly differentiates between those whom the Father has given him and those whom the Father has not given him. Look at John chapter 10. Keep your hand in Hebrews 2. And look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 22. Jesus has been talking about the fact that he is the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, he is laying down his life for his sheep. And we go in at verse 22 of John chapter 10. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. 
And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Listen, if you follow the Gospel of John, he's told them plainly numerous times. So look at his response. Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not part of my flock. Not part of my flock. You don't believe because you're not part of my flock. It's not you are not part of my flock because you don't believe. You do not believe, and the reason for your not believing is because you are not part of my flock. My sheep, verse 27, hear my voice. Who hears him? His sheep. Who hears Jesus? His sheep hear him. Who does not hear him? Those who are not his flock are not his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Or the Father's hand. See, the Father gave these sheep to me. You don't believe because you're not one of my flock, whom the Father gave to me. Look at John chapter 17. Now, I could make this point in John chapter 6. No one will come to me unless the Father draws him. But he says, all whom the Father has given to me will come. John chapter 6, but look at John chapter 17. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. That's the hour of his crucifixion. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh... Now follow this. He has authority over all flesh because he is the king of kings. The Lord of lords. He is the son of God. He has authority over all flesh. But you've given authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now look at verse 6. I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look down at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. The Son has come to save a particular people. Jesus did not die on the cross, please hear this, did not die on the cross for a plan that he hoped that somehow might someday apply to somebody. Jesus died on the cross with his particular people in mind. When he died on the cross, he was paying for your sins. Not some generic category of sin that he hoped someone might appropriate to himself. He was paying for your actual sins. He had you in mind. He didn't have a hypothetical people in mind. He had his actual people in mind. I lay down my life for the sheep. Which sheep? The sheep 
the Father has given to me. Yes, because he is the God-man. His sacrifice is, in fact, sufficient for the sins of every man who would ever live. It must be because of his very nature. He is God and man in one person, so his sacrifice would, by its nature, be sufficient for the sins of every man who would ever live. However, as a matter of the will of God, in his eternal decree and his historic covenant promises, Christ's death was only intended for and efficient for the sake of his elect people, the offspring of Abraham, the heirs of the promise. The eternal Son of God did not merely take generic humanity to himself, but he particularly took the seed or offspring of Abraham to himself. Pay attention to that. He didn't just become a man. He became the seed or the son of Abraham. Why? Because he became the seed of Abraham or the offspring of Abraham so that he might save the offspring of Abraham according to the promise of God. Now, I hope to demonstrate this morning that the son took Abraham's offspring to himself that he might save Abraham's offspring. And I recognize that as controversial as the subjects have been um, the last couple weeks, this might be the most controversial of them all. The eternal son took to himself the nature of the elect son, the chosen son. He took to himself the, Abraham's offspring that he might save the offspring of Abraham. Now, this brings us to a question about our text that we need to wrestle with. And I intend to show you this in the text, so you might not like what I'm saying, but hang with me as we look at the text together. The ESV, which I read from and most of you, I think, are using, the English Standard Version, and and frankly, all modern translations, whether it be the NIV, the NASB, etc., the ESV and all modern translations translate Hebrews 2.16 in a particular manner. Can you put the slide up? If it's, It's not already, right? So put that up. Listen to how, look at how they, in a particular manner, translate the, the, Hebrew, or excuse me, the Greek in Hebrews 2.16. For surely it is not angels that he helps or saves, but he helps or saves the offspring of Abraham. Now look at how the King James Version translates the same text. In other words, the reason I picked the King James Version is because it's not a modern translation. All the modern translations, Christian Standard Bible, Holman Christian Standard Bible, ESV, RSV, NIV, um, gosh, NASB. We could just go on, right? And, and on and on. All the modern English translations follow the ESV's way of coming at it. But the King James Version, a, non, a, a classical tra- English translation, if you will, translates it this way. For verily or surely, he took not on him the nature of angels, But he took on him the seed of Abraham, or the nature of Abraham's offspring. That's a dramatically different translation, isn't it? In one case, he's not saving angels, but he's saving the offspring of Abraham. In the other case, he's not taking to himself the nature of angels, but he's taking to himself the nature of the offspring of Abraham. Both translations, I'm going to frustrate you right here. Both translations 
are syntactically, what I mean, grammatically possible. They're both grammatically possible. Further, it's true that historically that all the church fathers, Augustine, Athanasius, certainly, all the church fathers, all the medieval scholastic um, teachers of the church, doctors of the church, and all the reformers through the Puritan era took this to mean that Jesus assumed a nature. He did not assume the nature of angels, but he assumed the nature of the offspring of Abraham. They all held to the translation that we see in the King James Version. It's also true that historically, most of your heretics interpreted it in the way that modern interpreters have, or modern translators have. So Socinus, the Unitarians, Socinus is the father of Unitarians, 16th century. They deny the Trinity. He would have tr- interpreted this text. He doesn't help the offspring. He doesn't help the angels. He helps the offspring of angels. So, while it's true that siding with heretics against the historic witness that Orthodox theologians ought to make us circumspect, right? When your modern translation sides with the heretics of the church rather than the Orthodox trans. Uh, theologians of the church, that's probably something you ought to stop and go, hmm, we need to think about this one a little bit. Okay? However, while it ought to make a circumspect, it doesn't settle the question. It doesn't settle the question. We have to resolve the question by the context. Because grammatically, either translation is possible. So we have to resolve it by the context and by observing the overall biblical witness. Now, what is it that the modern translations are arguing? What do they think this text is saying? They believe that the text is answering a particular question. What is the question that modern translations believe is being answered? Here's the question they think is being answered. Who did the Son of God come to help? Hear that? That's the question they think is being answered. Who did the Son of God come to help or come to save? Has he come to help or save the offspring of Abraham? Or has he come to help or save the angels? And they have good reason to argue for this conclusion. Clearly, the Son of God did become incarnate, did become man to save men, not to save angels, right? Specifically, he came to save the offspring of Abraham, the heirs according to the promise. That's who he came to save. He didn't come to save angels. In fact, let's look at how this same Greek word is used in the LXX, the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Specifically, it's used in Isaiah 41. So look there to Isaiah 41. Keep your hands in Hebrews 2. And look at Isaiah 41, this, this word help and how it's used. We translate assuming a nature rather than helping or saving it under the King James. Look, look what it says there in Hebrews, or excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8. Isaiah 41, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, this same Greek word for helps is here, okay? So let's look at that. Verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, 
whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Okay, who's he addressing? The offspring of Abraham, Israel, his servant. You guys following that so far? Now look what he goes on. You who I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Now here comes that word. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He is saying to Israel in this passage that begins in Isaiah 40 with comfort, comfort my people. My people are going into exile under Babylon. Comfort them that there is a restoration of Israel coming, that their salvation is drawing near, that they are my servant whom I've chosen. They are the offspring of Abraham. They are Israel. They are Jacob. And I will help them. I will save them. That's what he's saying. I will save the offspring of Abraham. I will help the offspring of Abraham. Now look at Luke chapter 1. Go forward to Luke chapter 1. This, um, in Luke chapter 1, what I'm going to reference is Mary's Magnificat. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 54, the last part of this song of Mary, as she's learned that um, she is, or she's reflecting on being pregnant with our Lord Jesus. It's basically from the same, this, she's going to use the word help here as well basically from the same family of Greek words. The um, preposition that's been tied to the front of it is a bit different, so, but, but we're generally in the same family of Greek terms. That's why I'm telling you how modern translators have gotten here. So listen to what they do. Verse 54 of Luke 1. He has helped his servant Israel. Remember his servant Israel in Isaiah 41, 8? Whom he's going to help, Isaiah 41, 10. The offspring of Abraham, whom he's going to help, Isaiah 41, 8 and 10. Now look, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, look at Hebrews chapter 8. Keep your hand there in Hebrews 2 and go forward to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll see another use of this Greek term. Again, in Hebrews chapter 8, as we look at the new covenant promise, look at verse 7. For if that first covenant, that's speaking of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt, if that first covenant had been faultless, they, there would have been no occasion to look for a second or a new covenant. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Remember, Israel, my servant. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. Same Greek word. It's helped. Same family. When I helped them. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Listen, it is certainly true that the eternal Son of God, certainly true, 
in an unqualified fashion, I'm going to affirm it is true that the eternal Son of God became a man to save, to help the offspring of Abraham, and not to save or help angels. So the ESV translation is not telling you something that's untrue. It is true, for he surely did not come to help or save angels, but he came to help or save the offspring of Abraham. That is surely true. It is obviously true that Jesus was a man to save men, not to save angels. We track with that? So I'm not saying that the modern translations give you bad theology. They're right. With that said, is this the question that's being asked in Hebrews 2? In other words, is the question in Hebrews 2, verse 16, is the question, who did he come to save, angels or men? Is that the question? Is the author concerned with who the Son of Man came to save? I don't think he's answering that question. I actually think the King James Version is a better translation here. And I'm going to tell you why. I think he's dealing with a different matter. What do I think he's dealing with? I think he's addressing the fact that the Son is better than the angels. The angels revealed the Old Covenant, but the Son is the final word. Moses redeemed Israel from Egypt, but the Son is the Redeemer. Angels are good and helpful messengers, but the Son is the Savior. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, we must, he's just said the Son is better than the angel, and he's made that case all through Hebrews chapter 1. The Son is better than the angels. The Son is better than the angels. The Son is better than the angels. God never said this to the, to the angels, but he said it to the Son. God never said this to the angels, but he said it to the Son. He's just made that very clear. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. From who? From the Son. Lest we drift away from it. For, here's the contrast, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. That's the message that Moses gets at Mount Sinai from the angels. It proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. That's speaking of Jesus. There's your contrast. The Son is better than the angels. Now look at Hebrews 2, 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. That is the new covenant age, which we are in the inauguration of and we're looking forward to the day it's consummated at his return. The Son is greater than the angels, though he was made lower than, than them for a little while. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now look how he continues in verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's speaking of the Son, and those who are sanctified all have one nature. We say source in the ESV, I think it's a bad translation. All have one nature. He became man to save men. And he's better than the angels. 
Thus he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Look at 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. The son took human nature to himself precisely because he was saving human beings. The emphasis over and over and over again is that the son, eternal son of God, became man. He took humanity to himself. We're speaking about his ontology, his being. He is God and man. And he must take on humanity to save men. Now, look at Hebrews 2.16 in the KJV, which I think, is it still on the screen? If it's not, I'll read it to you. It's fine if it's not. For verily or surely he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. In other words, you're not looking to some angel for salvation. You're looking to the eternal son who became man, and particularly who became the seed of Abraham. Now, what I'm arguing is this, that while I agree it is true the son became man to help or save the offspring of Abraham, that's clearly true. I do not believe that is fully grasping what is being said in the text here. It is absolutely true that the Lord promised to help or save the offspring of Abraham. Absolutely true. But how so? How was the Lord helping or saving the offspring of Abraham? He was going to save the offspring of Abraham, plural, offsprings, if you will, plural, through the offspring of Abraham, singular. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Keep your hands in Hebrews 2. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Let's go back to the promise. Because I think sometimes we miss what's happening in the Bible, and particularly in the book of Genesis, because we divorce Genesis 1 through 11 from Genesis 12 through 50 and following. What do I mean by that? In Genesis 1 through 11, we have this global situation. God has created all things, and he created a man and a woman. And he told them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you'll die. And they are tempted by Satan and they eat and they fall into sin and all of us are cursed with them. So in Adam's fall, sin we all. And we're all falling with Adam and we're looking at this global picture. And as you watch man grow more and more wicked, you continue to look at a global picture through Noah and the ark, the flood and Noah's ark, coming out of the ark through to the Tower of Babel and this spreading of them and confusing the languages, they go into all the earth. You have this global picture of what God is doing with mankind. And you have this promise of the seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. You're just told generically, it's the seed of the woman. There is this son coming who will crush the serpent and right all these wrongs, who will save us from the fall. He's coming. And then we get to Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham... And we narrow in on Abraham and his family, his offspring, which is Israel. And then we just sort of shift from the global situation to this national situation with Israel. And we lose sight of the fact that what God is doing with Abraham is exactly what he's doing with Abraham for the purpose of correcting the problem that we see in Genesis 1 through 11, or more specifically, 3 through 11. And we wander off into a story about Israel that has no connection 
to the garden and the fall and the coming of the seed of the woman. And it's a tremendous mistake, and it's why we so often misread the book of Genesis in in particular and the Holy Old Testament. Generally, we misread it because we don't understand that this entire story is working out the problem that we saw happen in Genesis 3. And it's driving us toward the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so when we come to Abraham, we have to understand that God is coming to him specifically to bring the promised seed of the woman. So look there. Now the Lord said to Abram, verse 1, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in Abraham, please hear this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice this. It isn't just that God is promising to save Abraham or to bless Abraham or to bless Abraham's physical offspring. It is that God's promising to bless all of Abraham's offspring, in all the families of the earth. And he's going to do it through his offspring. Look at Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And we could stop in 15 and 17, but for the sake of time, let's jump to 22. Verse 7. This is the scene where Abraham is told to go and sacrifice Isaac, his promised son, Now look at verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, I'm sorry, not verse 7. We're going to jump down to verse 17. Look what he says, verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, or of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of the gate of his enemies. That means he's going to have victory over his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. See, so God promised Abraham to bless all nations through him, specifically through Abraham's offspring. Yes, God was going to bless all the promised offspring of Abraham, plural, but he would do so through Abraham's offspring, singular. Now jump to Isaiah 41.8. I want to go back to that text. Isaiah 41.8. Jump back there. Isaiah is almost right dead in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 41. Well, I guess it depends on the, how much commentary you have built in. But Isaiah, in the margins, etc. But Isaiah 41.8. Look back there. But you, Israel, my servant. Notice that language. He's speaking to Israel. His Covenant people in Abraham, you Israel, my servant, Jacob, that's Jacob is renamed Israel, whom I've chosen, his elect people, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Remember, Abraham is called the friend of God. You who I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help or save you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, look to Isaiah 42. Because that 
Isaiah 41, 8 through 10 is speaking of Abraham's offspring in the plural. All his offspring. But look at Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant. Now the language in 41, 8 tells us the servant is Israel. Abraham's offspring. But now verse, chapter 42 and verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen. We were told that that was Jacob, or the people of Israel, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit, now notice the singular, upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. This is what he says. Thus he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Who is this servant? Is it the offspring plural or the offspring singular? Yes. Let me take you a step further. Look at Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. As he speaks to the coastlands and asks, verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Fascinating passage. Isaiah, as the prophet, um, speaking on behalf of God, is actually speaking of Israel's exile and Israel's restoration and comfort. But then he turns and speaks to all the nations of the earth. Listen to me. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. In fact, he named his name Jesus. For he will save his people. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. Now look, Israel, in whom I'll be glorified. That's the same Israel in Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. That's the same Israel in Isaiah 42, 1 and following. That's his servant, Israel, in whom I'll be glorified. Now look down at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Isn't it interesting? Israel is saving Israel. Israel is serving Israel. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, this servant Israel is going to come not just to save Israel, but to save the nations. How can this covenant promise to an elect people be narrowed to one man. 
Jesus. Because you recognize these texts because they're applied to Jesus, aren't they? They're applied to Jesus. Just like Exodus 4. This is my firstborn son, right? That language applied to Israel is, and then it's picked up again in Hosea 11.1. In Matthew chapter 2, then gets applied specifically to Jesus. Out of Egypt I called my son. How is it that this covenant promise to an elect people to Israel can be narrowed to one man. How does that happen? Because he is the federal head of the covenant people. Listen, just as Adam is the federal head of the whole of fallen mankind, so Christ is the federal head of all who are saved. Jesus represents the offspring of Abraham as any king or any federal head represents his people. We know this. If our president declares war on a nation, in our system, obviously, Congress declares war and not the president, but just go with the analogy, okay? If, if our Congress and our president together declare war on a nation, right, we will say as a country, we are at war with that country, now, I'm not maybe over there fighting myself. I may not even want to declare that war, but as someone represented by the, that federal head, I am now at war with that country because we as a nation are. Christ is the federal head of his people. Jesus represents the offspring of Abraham. So the Lord will help or save the offspring of Abraham, plural, by sending the offspring of Abraham, singular, the Messiah, the Christ, their federal head, through whom God would deliver all the Abrahamic blessings to all the nations of the world. Look at Galatians 3.16, in case you think I'm stretching this. Galatians 3.16. We'll start in verse 15. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant being added to the Abrahamic covenant in verse 15. But look what he says. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. See, even if you make a covenant in a man-made covenant, you don't get to add to it or annul it once it's been ratified. I mean, you go to the car dealership, you sign a, um, a contract for a car, and you go and you, you know, make the whole co- contract or covenant right there. As you walk out of the car dealership and get in the car, they don't get to run outside and say, we tacked another 10000 on, right? They don't get to do that, okay? You can only keep it a couple years and you have to give it back. I mean, unless you signed a lease, there you go, right? So... Even the man-made covenant, that's true. You can't annul the, the previous covenant. Now the promises, verse 16, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, listen, who is Christ. The promises given to Abraham were given to his offspring, the true offspring or the true seed of Abraham, who is Christ. And it's only those who believe in Christ who are Abraham's true offspring. Look, look, look if these promises were given to Abraham and to his offspring, Christ, How can we, I want you to hear this, how can we who are not ethnic Jews 
be included in these promises that were made to Abraham and his offspring, specifically to his offspring who is singular one, Christ. How can we be included if we're not ethnic Jews? Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's the non-ethnic Jews, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Do you hear that? The gospel was being preached in Genesis, folks. And the gospel message being preached in Genesis is that in Abraham's offspring, not only would Abraham's children according to the flesh, if you will, be saved, but all of Abraham's promised children among the nations would be saved in the one offspring who is Christ. Look what he goes on to say. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. Drop down to verse 14 of Galatians 3. So that in Christ Jesus, in the Messiah Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The spirit is promised in um, Joel 2, in Isaiah, etc. I could go on and on that. Now drop down to verse 26 of chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, a true Jew was never one who was one merely outwardly. The true Jew was one who was one inwardly. Not all Israel was Israel, Paul says. Romans chapter 9 and verse 6. The children of the promise are the offspring of Abraham. Not just the children of the flesh. Because the children of the promise are those who are incorporated into the Son, who is the offspring of Abraham. Please note this. You cannot separate Christ's incarnation as becoming man, his law-keeping life, and his atoning work on the cross from God's covenant promises to Abraham. You can't. What promises are you an heir of? Abraham's promise. And the promise was always, the promise was always to bless all the families of the earth through the offspring of Abraham. And Christ has made good those promises. Now, why did I do all this work? Because I want you to gather what's being said in Hebrews. The eternal Son of God became a man for our salvation. And we must understand that he became a particular man. He took to himself the offspring of Abraham. In other words, he is the heir to all the Abrahamic promises. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. He is the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. He is the seed of Abraham who brings salvation and blessing to all the nations. Thus, he is a better savior, a better redeemer, a better revealer than all who came before him. They all pointed forward to him. They were all types and shadows, but he is the fulfillment. The offspring of Abraham, for whom we've waited, has come. 
And that means that all of Abraham's blessings, most specifically, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you and you with me are now ours. Those promises are ours. They belong to all who have faith in Jesus Christ, the son, the offspring of Abraham. He's come to save his covenant children, his elect, those whom the father gave to him and promised to Abraham. And he has done so by being their covenant head, their federal head, keeping the law in their place and paying the penalty due to them in their place. Thus, I spent all this time on this translation issue because I want you to understand that the ground of his saving or helping work for you is found in his person and who he is. It's not enough to say he saves you or helps you. You need to know who it is that saves or helps you. He is the eternal son of God who united himself with humanity, who took to himself Abraham's offspring. He is the elect son, the heir according to the promise, the federal head of all of Abraham's offspring. And if you are in him through faith, you are Abraham's offspring as well. Do you hear the emphasis on who it is, who it is that saves you? He is the Christ. There's no reason. There's, there's, that's, that's, that's exactly why Matthew opens the way it does. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, what? The son of David, the son of Abraham. That's why Luke comes after that. He's the son of man, the son of God. Thus we look to him. We trust in him. We recognize that before the foundation of the world, God lovingly decreed to elect us in Christ. Further, at the very fall of man into sin, the Lord graciously promised to send the seed of the woman to save us. While Abraham and all nations were yet in sinful idolatry, the Lord graciously promised to send the seed of Abraham to secure all our covenant blessings. Two millennia before we were even conceived, in the fullness of time, the Son of God, the seed of Abraham was gloriously born of a virgin in Bethlehem, lived righteously in your place, and paid for your sins on the cross. And at some point, the Lord decreed in his kindness to send someone to preach that good news to you. And the Holy Spirit, out of his own sovereign grace, gave you ears to hear the good news. He gave you eyes to see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, and you were saved. This was God's loving decree in eternity, and this was God's gracious work in history, and you are beneficiaries of that in his son, Jesus Christ. What did you contribute? Nothing. Nothing. You contributed the sin. That's a detriment, not an addition. It is all from God, all in Christ, and all of grace. Thus we join Paul in praising God, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual 
blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would understand the love you have shown us, the grace you have shown us in your decree to send your son, this loving decree to send your son as the seed of the woman, as the seed of Abraham, as true Israel, the heir of the promise, the son of God, the son of man, that you sent him as our federal head to keep the law that we failed to keep and to pay the penalty that was due to us for our sin, to save us, to deliver to us all the blessings promised to Abraham, most specifically, that you would be our God and we would be your people and you would dwell with us and us with you. We give Thanks to you for sending him, our Savior, the offspring of Abraham, our help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.